This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fantastic episode here on Jews You Should Know and specifically in our sub-series, our mini-series on spirituality, mindfulness, mental health. This week we feature a brilliant psychologist who synthesizes many of these disciplines together. He is at the forefront of a revolution in the field of psychology whereby spirituality is not considered anathema or taboo, but rather is embraced and in fact incorporated as a core part of treatment. Dr. David Rosmarin is the head of a department within this specialty at the McLean Hospital, which is a branch of the Harvard Medical School. In addition, he also, while living in Boston, manages a series of clinics across New York in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Rockland County, Muncie, servicing hundreds of patients, primarily with anxiety disorders, but also suffering from depression and a whole range of psychological and psychiatric challenges. Dr. Rosemarin's approach to the fusion of spirituality and mental health is a breath of fresh air, a really refreshing confirmation that all of the unique gifts and tools of life can be marshaled in service of an ideally lived human existence. Once again, thank you for those following us on Instagram at Jews You Should Know. Spelled out fully, we will follow you back. And thank you as well to those who have been spreading the word about the podcast and those who have been sharing their listener feedback at JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. We have some media features coming up, God willing, where the podcast will be highlighted. Very excited about that. And the next couple of weeks, throughout the Passover season, some really fun episodes that will thematically tie into what this time of year is all about. Next week, we'll be wrapping up our Mindfulness and Spirituality Positivity miniseries with YouTube sensation Mayor K, Mayor Kalmanson, who's gone viral many times and whose most watched video has over 266 million hits. But we'll leave that for next week. Meanwhile, let's enjoy this week's conversation with Dr. David Rosemarin. We are here with Dr. David Rosemarin out of Boston, a Harvard-affiliated psychotherapist, pioneer in the field of anxiety and of marrying spirituality with psychotherapy and, and a whole other lot of other uh, fascinating specialties that we'll discuss and a uh, man with a wonderful story. How are you, Dr. Roseburn? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the, on the podcast. Thanks for joining. <laughs> so as we do with all our guests, we like to take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your own personal upbringing uh, was like. Sure. So uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada, and uh, to uh, wonderful South African parents. I grew up uh, fairly traditional, but uh, definitely not within the, let's say, mainstream of uh, today, what would be regarded as orthodoxy. 
Um, I went to Jewish school, though, my entire uh, life, or most of it anyway. Which school? Um, did you go to Chat? I did. I'm a Chat graduate. Okay. So we used to, I went to Beth Tefilla in, in Baltimore, and we used to uh, play against them in the Wiener Tournament, a basketball tournament they would come visit every year at our school. So I got to know them a little bit through that. Great. You probably beat them. Uh, probably we did, although, you know, we yeah. didn't win the tournament usually. So Right, um, right. <laughs> that was Maimonides' job, right? Or hey, Maimonides and some other schools. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I went to chat, you know, co-ed of uh, the Jewish high school. And then at that point, I decided to go to yeshiva. Um, about 10% of my grade went to yeshiva for at least one year. And uh, I was among them. Um, it was a bit of a surprise to people who knew me but it wasn't um, completely out of the beyond expectations. What, what would you say precipitated that? What made you one of the, uh, the 10%? It's a good question. And I don't entirely know, to be perfectly honest. I think that um, I started gravitating socially towards a more orthodox group later in high school. And that had uh, definitely part to do with it. So part of it was a social aspect of it. And another part was, and, and this is, an important one, I met somebody named Rabbi uh, Nisan Applebaum, and he was a rabbi at Chat, and he taught uh, some really cool courses like Jewish ethics, right. Jewish philosophy, and I realized that there was, there was some substance there, and I wanted to delve into it um, more substantively in the, in the year of dedicated study. Very cool. So I guess you went to one of these sort of traditional yeshivas for post-high school American kids? That's exactly it. And uh, Rabbi Bravender and Rabbi Riskin's yeshiva in Efrat. And, uh, and I was there for a year and it was very textual, very text-based, very skills-focused, very academic, very dry, and uh, maybe a little bit less on the personal spiritual growth side than I would have liked. But nevertheless, after my year, I definitely got a lot out of it and the experience of being in Israel. It was a wonderful experience. And I came back to Toronto and started college. And did you go to York, University of Toronto? Wow, you really know the Toronto scene, don't you? I'm, I'm <laughs> I know the college campus scene. That's no, kind of my yeah. big so. <laughs> I went to York and I graduated three years later and, and got married a couple months after that to a wonderful, wonderful woman uh, named Miri, um, who also went to York University. And uh, at some point over my college experience, in fact, it was when I came back from Israel I found myself getting a little bit anxious. And uh, in retrospect, I would say had mild to moderate symptoms of what we call generalized anxiety disorder, which is probably the mildest of all the anxiety disorders. But worry was in my mind and also uh, feelings of muscle tension. And at some point, I went to my rabbi, I went to Rabbi Applebaum, and I said, what do I do about this? Should I see a psychologist? And... Um, it's actually a kind of funny story. So I sat down with him and I'm sort of pouring my heart out to Rabbi Applebaum. And he gets up from the table and he runs out of the room. And I'm like, oh dear God, what did I do? You know, did I, should I not have said this? Was this a mistake? Scared him so, off. <laughs> I scared him off. What did I do? This is my mentor. So I, he's running down the hall and I'm running after him. I'm like, wait, wait, I can explain. Hold on. You know, why are you running? And I, he makes a, a sharp left off the corridor into a, uh, a room. And I'm like, that's the office. It's a photocopy machine, not much else. What's he doing in there? And I follow him down and I see him photocopying page after page after page after page in the photocopy machine. And I'm like, this, this scene is bizarre, you know? So I, he goes at it for like five minutes on the machine. <clears throat> and then he hands me this document and he says, 
I'm really glad you came to me to talk about this issue. I don't know whether you should see a psychologist, maybe yes, maybe no, but I'm gonna give you a prescription that's been around for over a thousand years. And I look at this book and it says The Duties of the Heart by Rav Bahaya Ibn Pakuda, which I later found out was written before Maimonides, before the Rambam. And it says, The Gate of Trust in God. And he says, I want you to read this for 20 minutes a night. And I want you to think very deeply about what's inside and how to implement it into your life. And after 30 days, if your anxiety still persists, then we'll talk about where I can refer you. And I have plenty of people I can refer you to. And I said, okay, I can, you know, my symptoms aren't that bad. I can hack it for 30 days. And right. minimum, this is going to be a fun experiment and I'm going to learn something. Why don't we give it a try? And I kid you not, within two, three weeks, I was really feeling fine. Wow. No medication, no professional psychotherapy, no speaking to anybody, no purging the demons of the soul, nothing. Just straight up. So no psychoanalysis. On the no analysis, no talking about my mother, who's a wonderful lady, nothing, nothing of the sort. And I had that experience in first year college. So I kind of filed it away and then I was going to pursue law school. I took my LSATs, did really well. I was going to head out and, you know, do the, you know, the, the Jewish Canadian American dream, right? Get <laughs> lawyer business, you know, make some money and have a family and move on. But it just wasn't doing it for me. And a couple years later, actually, my, in my fact, in my final year of college, I switched my major to psychology. Interesting. And I said, uh, I'm going to, I want to do this and I really want to do it seriously. And I applied for graduate school and I was accepted to the University of Toronto for a master's, which I started the, after I got married the, the year after college. When I went to my mentors, they said, well, my mentors came to me and they said, we know you have to do a thesis. And I said, well, I had this experience and I told them the story that I just told you. And they said, you know, why don't you do an actually study on this? Like an, an empirical study. Maybe huh. it was just your experience or maybe, maybe other people also through trust in God, they can actually cope with anxiety as well. So I embarked on a program of empirical scientific research to look at um, trust in God and anxiety and uh, fast forwarding another couple of years, I ended up in the United States for graduate school, working with Dr. Kenneth Pargament, who's a real, he's a, a world leader in spirituality and psychotherapy. Where did you go for graduate school? Bowling Green State University. Bowling Green, is that in Ohio? It is, Northwest Ohio. You really know your colleges. <laughs> <laughs> that one I don't know from, from Jewish education. That one I know from uh, CAA basketball. <laughs> right, yeah, football, football for sure, the Falcons. So I went there and then Ken, uh, Dr. Pargaman really helped me to hone my program of research and turn it into something substantive. We ended up publishing a number of papers. The upshot of it, well, there's another development, which is that I, I, at some point in my graduate school career, actually before then, I met Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman in Jerusalem. And I uh, became a student of his and uh, spent many hours with him talking about not only trust in God, but other aspects of Jewish faith and practice and how they relate to mental health and how those can be used to help people struggling specifically. I guess I'll fast forward just a little bit to the end of my graduate school. I, I did, for my dissertation, I was continuing this line of research, which was getting, starting to get some attention in the academic world, surprisingly. Was it considered and controversial at the time? A little bit because uh, spirituality has been long ignored by the mental health fields, the combined mental health disciplines as uh, something which is 
I mean, it was, you know, Freud thought it was a neurosis. Right. But I believe the, I read somewhere that, you know, scientists, generally speaking, have a high degree of atheism, sure. uh, depending on the discipline, but that psychiatrists, I believe, of the highest level. Correct. Uh, at least in one study that I saw, 95%, something really extreme. It's even more than surgeons. Which is, which is surprising, but what would you attribute that to? Um, a number of things, but pre predominantly, I think the anti-religious sentiments that were expressed by the early leaders in the field, most of which was Freud, really created a culture within mental health that is anti-religious. Now, that has changed a lot. Uh, over the last 30 years, there's become a greater openness to it. And I'm really, I was very fortunate to be doing this line of research at a time when it was, the things were starting to turn and the field was starting to become more open to it. One of the developments that led to that, just interestingly, is mindfulness. Now you find that Eastern meditation has a very strong place, mindfulness and, and uh, meditative practice. And I think that opened the field up to more explicit forms of spiritual and religious life as potentially being helpful mm. uh, to some people. So the stars aligned, I guess. And um, for my dissertation, I actually flew to Israel. I met with Rabbi Kellerman. I also met with Rabbi uh, Noah Orlowek. Sure. And a number of other leaders in the, in the Mus Musar tradition, the Musar tradition. And I said, how do you teach people to have trust in God? And they gave me some pointers and I wrote them down and I codified them and created actually a program which helped people to build trust in God. People specifically were struggling with anxiety and worry. And to everyone's surprise, including my own, you know, <laughs> when I did this, I'm like, okay, this was, you know, initially it was just my experience. And we had some data showing that trust in God was associated with less worry in general among Jews. And also, in, in fact, among Christian Jew groups as well. We found this beyond the Jewish world that this, this applied as well. But, at, you know, could you really create an, and it was an online program at that, and just 30 minutes long that people did on a daily basis for two weeks. So not pretty minimal intervention. The, the results were extremely compelling. Um, we had large reductions in worry and stress over the period of just a couple weeks. And um, the New York Times ended up picking up the, uh, the information, and it was, wow. Scientific American picked it up. U.S. News and World Report uh, picked up the news. And it was, it was published study in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders. So it, it made a splash in the, in the academic world as well. And um, <clears throat> all in all, but more than 500 people participated in the study. So I think it changed a lot of lives. How did you account for the placebo effect? You know, the opiate of the masses kind of stuff where, okay, well, you know, you tell them to believe in this theoretical abstract thing that's taking care of them. So people will feel, you know, comforted and, and will be okay. But it, doesn't necessarily count for the true presence of a spiritual existence, so to speak. It's a great question, and it's one that I get a lot. I'll tell you my answer to it, and I don't know if it's going to be compelling to you, but it's my answer nonetheless. I'm not a theologian, and I'm not a rabbi. I'm not out to prove the existence of a spiritual entity or the validity of a spiritual religious source. I'm here to help people who are suffering. A lot of people are, the, the number of people suffering today with anxiety and depression and worse, it's unbelievable. Nearly one in five Americans has a full-blown anxiety disorder in every given year. In every year, like right now, 
the number is 18.1%, 18.2%. And that's from a couple of years ago. It's probably even more now. And the severity is getting more significant over time. The complexity of symptoms gets more significant over time. Just look at the, the opiate crisis. I mean, it's not an anxiety disorder, but often comorbid with anxiety and depression. And these are, these are significant issues that are, that are literally plaguing our society. Furthermore, many people want spirituality to be part of their treatment. We sampled patients now in my current position at McLean Hospital, which is uh, affiliated with the Harvard Medical School here in, in Eastern Massachusetts, which is not exactly like Bible Belt, right? Right. More than half of our patients want to have spirituality as a part of the discussion. 58.2% of our patients said that they wanted to have spirituality discussed and broached with their therapists. So it's, I, I'm not here to validate spiritual beliefs. I'm here to meet people where they're at and to help them, to give them tools to move forward using approaches that have been, frankly, have thousands and thousands of years of history behind them. And when modern science evaluates them, to my knowledge and my experience, they can be highly effective. So I guess you were publishing these papers and doing all this research. Where did it go from there? Because at some point, it sounds like this really took off as a clinical approach. Um, did you kind of formulate an entire philosophy of treatment around this? Did you look to, you know, create a, an institute or that this could be implemented? Like, where did you go from this early place of study? And yeah, it did. It definitely did get interesting after my dissertation. I've been, you know, probably about um, nearly ten years beyond that. Believe it or not, it's kind of hard to hard for me to imagine that, but uh, <laughs> I guess it's true. And over that period, I've really worked on two fronts. The first has been locally here in Boston where I live with my family, and I'm at this point an assistant professor at, uh, in, at Harvard Medical School, and uh, I direct uh, a program at McLean Hospital called the Spirituality and Mental Health Program. And that's the first of its kind in any non-sectarian hospital in the world, to my knowledge. A couple things that we're doing. Firstly, advancing the research, and I'm collaborating with a number of laboratories on different aspects of how spirituality can be related or how it is related both in positive frankly and also negative ways it's not always positive we've been speaking a lot about we've been speaking a lot about the positive side but i don't want to i don't want to underemphasize this other aspect which is that sometimes spiritual struggles people can struggle with their faith why did god do this to me is is there a purpose in my life what am i here to achieve why do bad things happen to good people can i cope with something bad that i have done in my life and i feel is morally beneath me you know, these, are kind of, these are questions that can really nag at people yeah. and create very significant mental health concerns. Can, so, you, can you talk about that a little bit? What are some of the struggles that you've seen in the ne- and, you know, on that negative side? And what are kind of the, the challenges that it does create for people? Oh, there, there, there are a lot in clinical populations. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple examples. I mean, one of them, you know, we had a patient who came in. He was actually a very acute suicide risk. He had a very serious opiate addiction and lot of chronic pain. He um, had uh, marital struggles, uh, male, lots of access to firearms. And he was meeting with our clinical team and nothing was working. He had, uh, I think, uh, six or seven therapists and about 24 different medications. I kid you not. Wow. And, uh, and he was just not making much headway, making much improvement. In my discussions with him as a, as a consultant on his, with regards to his spiritual life, what came forward was that he really felt hopeless. He felt that there was nothing that he could do. He was cursed, basically. 
and that God had cursed him with chronic pain and a bad marriage. Things were, you know, in his business and struggling in all these areas. And there was nothing he could do to overcome that. And I, I challenged those thoughts. I said, you know, I mean, I had my discussions with him and I, I encouraged him to pursue positive aspects of his spirituality. And I challenged him by asking, does he really think that he's here in this world to fail? Or maybe is there a deeper message here in a way in which he could engage? He found new meaning in his family. And instead of pursuing his uh, athleticism, which he had previously done, and his business with his chronic pain, it was harder to do, he would train himself to relax and to enjoy his family. And that gave him a new meaning and a new purpose. And he, he actually substantially recovered. Um, I believe as a result of that, that engagement that, that, and, and I think he felt less conflicted spiritually because of it. He felt that God had really, instead of was punishing him, was actually redirecting him to a new vista in his life. Mm. One that's actually blessed. I, I continue to this day to get pictures of him with his family. Um, every couple of months or so, he'll send me a, a picture of him holding a grandson or uh, for dinner with his family with his wife, with his children. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That is beautiful. Wow. Um, so anyway, take us back to the story. You were, when did you start kind of ramping this up? And Yeah, so, you know, it, we did some research at McLean. We found that a lot of our patients want to speak about spirituality, like I mentioned. We did a study that founding, finding that um, when patients have belief in God, they're more likely to do better in treatment in terms of their remission of depression. Substantially more likely. And to the extent that they believe in God, that matches the extent to which they benefit from reductions in depression over the course of treatment. We found that the spiritual struggles, when people are struggling in those ways that I mentioned before, extremely pernicious, very problematic, associated with high levels of suicidality prior to coming into the hospital. Now I'm working on some neuroimaging studies, which are not published yet, but those are really fascinating. We have some longitudinal work that we're doing. I think the most important thing, though, is I'm trying to, I'm, and I, we're doing this on mass, is training clinicians in how to speak to their patients about spiritual life. A lot of clinicians will change the subject. They will. Like 20% or so of clinicians will admit that they will actively change the subject if somebody raises the issue of spirituality or religion, which is pretty That's sad. Striking, yeah. And if you <laughs> think that, you know, from the little I know about psychotherapy, I would imagine that much of what is supposed to go on is that a clinician is willing to go where the patient wants to go and 100%. be there with them. So changing that subject would seem to be somewhat uh, derelict. Derelict and not patient-centered. Yeah. But, but there is a reason why the clinicians do it. It's because they don't know what to do. And, is it um, because they don't know what to do or because is there perhaps an animus that's there and, and either conscious or subconscious I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's animosity. I think it's more about not wanting to offend anybody in fear. I think it's a matter of lack of knowledge and, and more, I think it's more mediated by fear than antagonism. There are exceptions to that. And I've met, my, some of my colleagues have openly challenged me on the, you know, spirituality should have no place in psychotherapy. This is a secular, and I disagree in as much as the patient wants it. But if a patient doesn't want spirituality, then I would agree with them. And to me, the toggle switch is really what does the patient want, not the sort of value that I'm going to impose upon the therapeutic process, like those colleagues would say. Um, in any event, so we actually have a spirituality group. We call it spirit, spiritual <laughs> psychotherapy for inpatient 
residential and intensive treatment. S-P-I-R-I-T. Nice, right? So we're doing <laughs> we our came up with that one. <laughs> um, some people in our lab meeting, we were kicking around uh, acronyms and it <laughs> popped out. Very clever, yeah. So we actually have a project now, which is funded by the John Templeton Foundation, which is doing these spirit groups on, believe it or not, 10 inpatient units and another two residential units. So it's about 100 patients a week. Um, Over the course of the year, you know, several thousand patients who are receiving these groups. What's really cool is that the leaders of the groups are not religious or spiritual in many cases. Hmm. And we're just giving them guidelines to be able to do it. It's extremely popular. Many patients, when they exit the program, when they leave the, the hospital, they will write on their exit interviews that the best part of their program was coming to a spirit group. And this is one hour out of an entire week or more of therapy, which includes medications and some of the best doctors in the world and therapy groups on everything and individual therapy and sometimes uh, neurotherapeutic techniques like electroconvulsive therapy. I mean, we, we, we are a full service psychiatric hospital offering the best that medicine can possibly provide. But a number of patients, not all patients, but a number of patients really gravitate towards the spiritual What's so interesting to me is that, you know, you yourself were quote unquote cured or, you know, remediated through just spiritual readings. And yet you've entered a profession in which you have to do a lot more than that. Why wasn't your conclusion, hey, just people should just read the duties of the heart and <laughs> that suffices. In other words, you didn't, you didn't leave it at that. You, you did choose to go into a, an arena that was much more comprehensive in terms of its treatment. Yes, I think there are a couple things. Um, I'm very fortunate. My anxiety was not severe. It was not complex. It was short-lived. It came on in life later, and it was during a specifically stressful period. So I think for me, it was possible to get out of it with a pretty minimal, if you can call it an intervention. So it was really just episodic and, and, and limited in scope. Right. And I think a lot of people who experience stress and anxiety and worry at lower levels or medium levels, and they haven't let it, also, I didn't let it go a long time. You know, had I buried it and not dealt with it for multiple years, there's no way I would have been able to get out of it with 20 minutes of reading a day for a month. There's no way. Right. I I, I would have needed something much more. Today, the majority of people, though, who come for services are a lot more complex than I was anyway. And um, I'm glad I had the experience. I think it gives me a bit of a sense of what they go through, but my patients go through much worse than I ever have. And I think a lot of them need a lot more. So the sophistication of the techniques has to match the complexity of the symptoms that are in front of you. And at McLean Hospital, we deal with some of the worst cases in the world. So what percentage then would you, if you had to kind of identify for someone who's got severe symptoms, what place or role does the spiritual component have within the larger sphere of psychotherapy, medication, and so forth? Great question. The number one factor that's going to determine the extent to which spirituality plays a role is whether the patient wants it. For patients who want it, it can play an enormous role. Even when they're receiving, in the context of evidence-based care, which is multi-pronged involving pharmacotherapy, psychotherapy, individual, group, family-based treatment. There are lots of ways to weave spirituality into 
the processes of those delivering those services, which I actually just wrote a book on that called Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavior Therapy, A Guide for Clinicians. And that's out with uh, Guilford Press just this year. Oh, wow. Wonderful. And that's much more comprehensive than just a trust in God approach or just a single prong. That's really more multi-pronged for multiple different types of disorders and different a variety of patients and different treatment settings. If you had to describe what it is about that spiritual process that is so therapeutic, that is so helpful, how would you express it? What is it that's so effective? It's a really, really great question. I, I think it does depend on the individual, but ultimately it boils down to relationships. Spirituality at its core, I think, is about relating to a sacred entity, which is very different than you are. It's about getting outside of yourself and having a connection with and a relationship with something, with an entity that is vastly, vastly different, but yet at the same time, is, it's a very natural human process to reach out to that entity. I think that once people are moving towards a relationship with an entity that is so deep and so vast, it's easier for them to relate to other people because other people are more similar to you. And it's also easier to relate to yourself. So that could be what's one of the mechanisms at play. I think there are more basic mechanisms at play though. Like if I believe in God, then I can be hopeful even if things are really bad. Or if I trust in God, then what am I worrying about? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to be taken care of. That's presuming a benevolent God or a yeah, loving God. Yeah, which most religions presume. There's also uh, interpersonal factors. Um, faith communities often bring together people, and there are lots of points of engagement. Um, also, it's a, there, there are rituals. There are ways of commemorating different aspects of life and celebrating those. Gratitude. Gratitude is a very spiritual emotion. Being grateful, being happy, being optimistic, being positive. All of these are messages that are emphasized in spiritual and religious texts across different faith traditions for eons. And I think all of them can go a long way in combating some of the more negative and challenging messages that we see on the television and uh, in the media all day. I don't know how much you deal with, uh, with addictions treatment in your settings, but how much of what you do dovetails with, overlaps with 12-step work? 12-step work. It's interesting that addictions is actually one of the areas that I've done less work in. I think I have one or two papers on addictions, but I, I have definitely done some rotations on it. It's fascinating to me that in addiction, you find there is a bit of a culture within mental health that it's okay to have spirituality to be a part of it because of AA. AA is the most widely practiced mental health treatment on planet Earth. There are literally millions of people who go to groups on a weekly basis. And AA is about, like most centrally, giving up control to something that is greater. That's step number one. That's another spiritual facet of spirituality, which I think can be huge for anxiety and for depression and also for substances. So you haven't done much work directly with it, but you see it as kind of an example, maybe in another sphere of practice where that's really a thriving piece of things. Exactly. And anybody who does addictions work is well aware of the connection between spirituality and mental health. Right. So take us back to what you've actually been doing. So you've, you've opened this, this spirit program. And you have all the, uh, the, the groups going, the studies going on. Is that the extent of what you've done it through the Harvard Hospital? or At McLean, yeah. At, at, at the medical school, that's 
the majority of my work is training clinicians how to do this, having clinical innovations to be able to teach clinicians and how to address the spiritual, the sacred in treatment uh, within an evidence-based framework, um, doing research and teaching um, and administrative work. That's primarily what I do uh, here. However, being a, a member of the, of the Jewish community, I also uh, want to service the, the Jewish community, specifically the Orthodox community. In fact, when I graduated, my religious mentor said to me, okay, you did a fellowship at the medical school and it's time to move to New York and help, help a lot of people. And I said, I can do it, but we have this opportunity in, in Boston to do some pretty, some pretty cool work on spirituality and mental health for the field. And they said, you're right, you shouldn't give it up, you should do both. Yeah. Well, the problem is there's, you know, there's uh, 200 miles in between. And the next thing I know, a very benevolent and generous philanthropist came to me and uh, covered a lot of my uh, office costs and also my travel costs for the first couple of years of starting up a program in the New York metropolitan area called the Center for Anxiety. Center for Anxiety has become really a go-to place for the Orthodox Jewish world, but also beyond for mental health. It's centerforanxiety.org, by the way, centerforanxiety.org. And uh, at this point, thank God, we have 15 clinicians. Actually, we just hired a couple more, so it's more like 18. In three offices, we're located in Manhattan on 57th Street, right across from Carnegie Hall. And uh, we have an office in Flatbush in, uh, the, in Brooklyn, which services a number, a substantial number of Orthodox Jewish individuals, children, adolescents, adults. And then also in Rockland County now in Muncie, we just opened up an office last year. All of these uh, offices, in the Manhattan office, I would say about 40 to 50% of our patients are from the Orthodox Jewish world but we have service a broader constituency. And in Muncie and Brooklyn, it's probably more like 80 to 90%. It's unbelievable the work that my clinical team does. I'm, I'm really marveled by it, by how they've taken the ball and run with it. I wouldn't say they're using spirituality uh, as much as I am in McLean, because that really requires a different degree of specialty. But for sure, we are very spiritually sensitive. Whenever patients want spirituality to be part of treatment, uh, the clinicians routinely consult with me about it. Our treatments, though, are, are primarily cognitive behavior therapy, and when patients want spirituality to be part of it, we integrate it. What unique pathologies or challenges do you see in that work? Are there some particular issues that, that are unique to that sector of the community, the Jewish community or the religious Jewish community that you see in that wide-ranging work? Because you really have a kind of a, a bird's-eye view with so many patients, and you know, you're not just like one practitioner, but right. you're you know, overseeing a whole group of people treating this population. So what do you see in mass that, that's taking place in the community? Yeah, and, and it is a mass. I think we have uh, 300, 350 active patients at any given time. And about, uh, again, 75, 80% on the, to on the whole are, are from the Orthodox Jewish world. Um, we're seeing a couple of trends. Number one is that Orthodox Jewish patients tend to want their families to be more involved in treatment. What do you mean by families? Do you mean parents, parents? sometimes siblings, sometimes siblings are involved, sometimes grandparents are involved. I've even seen the, a, a well-meaning aunt or uncle who has called our office. It's a much more family-centric culture. I'm surprised by that because I would also think there's maybe more sense of stigma or shame that would preclude that. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why is that not only when, when an individual has a, a mental health concern that could impact the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and the parents and other siblings in a way that everybody needs to be 
informed to some degree while protecting the patient's privacy and confidentiality. But these are the kinds of issues that we will do. One of the strategies we have, for example, is what will appoint a second therapist and have one therapist work with the family and one therapist work with the individual and coordinate between the two. And, and everybody is aware and full informed consent. I mean, if the patient or their family isn't comfortable with that, then of course we would not take that approach. But usually the patient's very happy to have somebody get their parents off their back. And the parents are very happy to have somebody to speak to as opposed to somebody who's just working with their kid and doesn't have the time to spend helping them to understand what they need to do. Interesting. Okay, so on the one hand, you're seeing more familial involvement, more of kind of a uh, team approach <laughs> to help right. somebody get treatment. Yeah, it definitely takes a village. Yeah. Another thing we're seeing is, and this is common in all religious communities, if you go to Egypt or if you go to uh, Indonesia, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but more religious groups tend to have what we call religious symptoms. Sometimes certain aspects of psychopathology, such as OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and uh, mania or bipolar disorder, um, and psychosis, uh, psychotic disorders, they tend to, when patients have a religious background, those symptoms tend to have a religious flavor to them. So for example, when somebody who's not religious has obsessive compulsive disorder, they might have obsessions about the AIDS virus. And they're contaminated with AIDS and they're going to wash their hands and they're going to use Purell and maybe they touch something and it might have been a blood spot that they saw and they don't want to touch things on the subway because maybe somebody who had AIDS touched that spot and they'll wash their hands repeatedly and they won't eat until they, that can be very debilitating instead of obsessions and compulsions. When somebody's religious, they can have the same concerns about contamination, but it might be about spiritual impurity. Oh no, I touched something that was spiritually impure and it's going to taint my soul, and I'm carrying it around with me, and I have to get rid of these thoughts, and I have to have a certain purity of mind when I approach my prayers, and if I don't have that, then I have to go back and say the prayer over and again, and say it over again, and, which is, it's OCD. It just has a religious twist because the patient's coming from a religious background. I would imagine that's a much more pernicious version because you can't just treat the symptom. You have to kind of convince them that this is not really what God wants. That is definitely the case, and all the more reason why if you don't integrate spirituality in a positive way into treatment and helping such patients, you're probably going to lose them. And the data suggests that patients who have such religious symptoms versus secular symptoms, they fare worse in psychotherapy. They end up using primarily pharmacological treatments, medication, as opposed to therapy. And on the end of the day, they actually fare worse. So do you then involve rabbis and things like that in those kinds of treatments? Yes, we often do. I have Rabbi David Cohen in Brooklyn, New York. He's literally on my speed dial. <laughs> and, uh, we are routinely in touch with people's uh, own rabbis, their clergy. And part of it is demarcating where does the religion end and the scrupulosity begin? And how can we delineate that line? And then treatment goes all the way up to the line of religion, but not over. And do you find patients being receptive to that or do you find them fighting you often on that? Patients sometimes with secular symptoms will fight us as well. So sometimes patients, no, I'm not touching that. I might get AIDS. And they will sometimes refuse and be belligerent and be angry. And so I think you find people struggling with that form of treatment, the exposure therapy, which is what we use for it, uh, irrespective of their symptoms. Do they fight more when it comes to religion? I'm not sure that they do. Really? I don't think so. I found the religious community actually to be very workable, but you have to explain it to them clearly. You have to be very validating of their spiritual and religious background, and you also have to involve their family. In the work generally that you're doing, how do you distinguish between 
let's call it religious and spiritual because you're dealing with spiritual issues, but then you're also dealing with religious populations within that. Yeah, it's a good question. My academic colleagues have routinely asked me this question. Um, spirituality is a broad construct. It refers to any way of relating to the sacred, the sacred being something which is separated from this world, something that is metaphysical. So um, if I view anything as having some sort of sacred metaphysical quality, and I, on my own, come to appreciate its sacred qualities and relate to it in a certain way, then I have spirituality in my life. Religion is a subset of spirituality, which are culture-bound, shared ways of defining the sacred and relating to it. So religion is a subset of spirituality. So when you're instructing people in your, in your training programs or whatnot, uh, your colleagues, to deal with these things, you're really giving them spiritual tools but not necessarily religious tools, but I guess the sensitivities to be open to the religious realities of people? That's exactly right. When a patient comes in and has religion as part of their life, I think it's important to validate their religion and to work with what they have. There are some complexities when different religious uh, viewpoints uh, clash with each other, but I found those to be surprisingly rare in a clinical context. So notwithstanding those uh, small exceptions, basically it means supporting the patient where they are at, with regards to their religious beliefs and or their spiritual perspectives. So what's next for, for you in, in the Center of Anxiety in New York or for the McLean work that you're doing through Harvard Medical School? What are some of the unexplored or unexamined areas that you'd still like to research or you'd still like to implement in this nexus between spirituality and mental health? Yeah, there sure are a lot. I'll tell you, at the Center for Anxiety, our next step is to get more office space in Manhattan. We are <laughs> busting it over there. Well, thankfully, that's and very inexpensive, so no problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, waiting list for a year just to apply. It's uh, oh oh no, and also we're we're in a pretty exclusive um, medical building in uh, in the center of the, in the heart of the city. So we're right. very happy to be there. We have wonderful neighbors and great. You know, we're very happy. Two hundred West Fifty Seven. So um, that's something we're finding in the Orthodox community and also beyond that the symptoms are getting more complex and more severe. So we're rolling out what we call dialectical behavior therapy programs um, in, in all of the sites, which is a, it's a, it's a form of therapy that's been around for close to 20 years at this point. And it's capable of handling not just anxiety, but comorbid things when people also have depression, when they also- Which is very common, right? Very common. Anger issues and interpersonal concerns, and sometimes people engaging in impulsive behaviors so that, I think, is our next step. I mean, we are already doing it. In the last year, we've had, I don't even know how many, hundreds of referrals for this program. And sometimes in the Orthodox world, it can break apart families when people have these complex symptoms. So there's definitely a need for it, and we're very happy to be able to service the, the Jewish world and beyond. Again, a lot of our patients are not from there. I kind of think of us as a high-end kosher restaurant in some ways. You're going to have like, to explain that analogy to me. <laughs> If you go into a nice kosher restaurant in New York City, you see a lot of people wearing yarmulkes and you see a lot of people, but there are people off the street or not, just and they went in because it's a nice place to eat. That's kind of how I think of the Center for Anxiety, that you know, <laughs> we're kosher, so to speak, and you, know, you can always get a, get a spiritually sensitive, great therapist, but you definitely don't have to have that or want it in order to, in order to avail yourself to our services. Got it. <laughs> no way to conceptualize it. That's on the Center for Anxiety front. On the McLean front, there's a lot going on. We rolled out a chaplaincy program recently, which has been extremely well received. Mental health chaplaincy is very rare 
unfortunately. I would like to see that grow in our program. I think, you know, across the hospital, I think it's been very, it's been great. Another thing is these spirit groups, I think they could potentially go national. I would like to see um, medical centers across the country, uh, certainly across the region, implementing these groups. We have a good protocol and patients like it. It's also, it can be used for a variety of disorders, whether it's depression or anxiety or OCD or eating disorders or substance abuse or psychotic disorders. I mean, literally the gamut. And in terms of severity, people are on inpatient units, residential units, partial hospitals, any hospital-based treatment at acute level, we have a really solid protocol. And I'd like to be able to, to get that out to the academic world. We have a couple of initiatives to do that, to branch beyond McLean. The neuroimaging studies are extremely fascinating and really, really, really exciting to me. So I'm trying to pursue those lines of research. Right now, that's more on the side because of the clinical innovation and trying to help as many people as I can. That's something that I'd like to do very much more. We have, you know, about 100 years of catch-up to do on this area. So, uh, you know, for 100 years, it was ignored, spirituality and mental health. So I definitely have a long to-do list. Well, we're very grateful that you've started that to-do list and uh, that you've shared just a little bit of what you've been doing with us your own wonderful saga. Tell people where they can find you online, where they can find your different projects, programs, organizations, books, all the things you're involved with online. Sure. So uh, the Center for Anxiety is at www.centerforanxiety.org. And that is based in New York, offering uh, services not just for anxiety, for the gamut of many symptoms um, at a variety of levels, lower levels, medium levels of, uh, of severity, even higher levels. And um, we are in uh, Manhattan, Rockland County, and uh, in Brooklyn. And you can also find me at McLean Hospital, which is uh, in uh, eastern Massachusetts, Belmont, Mass., just outside of Boston. It's associated with the Harvard Medical School. If you Google spirituality and mental health McLean Hospital, my faculty page will pop up, and you can hear, learn a little bit more about the work here in Boston. Wonderful. Dr. David Rosemarin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.